0: I'm going to be doing a message on the sanctity of human life, and um, I'll talk about that a little bit more, but if you would stand, John chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 2 through 12, it's kind of a basis for our what I'll share this morning, so John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, and then I hope you'll keep your Bibles open or your devices as we will come back to this in the second half of what I'm sharing this morning. So here it is. Jesus says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him. That they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, continued bugging him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is, who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Let me read that verse 12 again, and I'll pray. Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Lord, we're thankful again for your word. We're asking in Jesus' name to give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying Lord, this morning. Grant to us Humble hearts, ready minds, a willingness in our, just our thinking this morning, as the truth comes forward, willing to just say, okay, Lord, what does that mean for me? What is it you would have me to do? How would you have me to respond? And we would ask, Lord, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know you, we know the first response needs to be the gospel, that you love them, you died on the cross for them. You want to forgive them of all their sins, set them free, give them peace beyond measure, hope beyond this whole life, way, you said, a a life abundant. We know, Lord, that that's exactly what you do. So we're, we're trusting, Lord, that you are going to, by your Holy Spirit, minister now in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. You can be seated. The sanctity of human life and really the topic of abortion. I think I'm reasonably informed but certainly no expert on this huge, tragic topic of abortion. I also know that I can speak for most of us in this room because the heart-rending brokenness of abortion has scarred my own extended family. I would also add that for any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, from those who are just beginning to be equipped to those who are on the front lines in the battle of these, for these precious souls, for the believer... It only gets more shocking. And so much the more because our once Christian culture has forsaken the giver of life in order to sin shamelessly according to our own ungodly lusts. So I hope that as a nation, we have not yet expended the long-suffering tender mercies of God. And I pray that for our nation. I spent Friday reading articles, visiting websites, watching videos, pursuing, perusing a few studies I've done on this topic in, the, in past years. Hasn't been a lot, but some. I spent Saturday and in, and this morning asking God to help me communicate his heart to his people through his word. And all this that I was doing was surrounded by my wonderful preaching prayer team on That's what I call it, the preaching prayer team. About 20 people, if you would like, you can join it. I'd love it, who for a year now, I email two two to four times a week to pray for the preparing and the teaching of the Word of God. Abortion is not an abstract issue. It is as concrete as life and death. Oxford Dictionary defines abortion as the deliberate termination of a human pregnancy most often performed during the first 28 weeks. About 30% of American women will have an abortion by age 45. That's staggering. So I'm going to leave this morning the research, the statistics, up to you, for you to research those things. This study this morning has two parts. Number one, a few quotes that illuminate the battle that we're in. And we are in a battle. In fact, spending just two days thinking these things through, you, you realize, wow, this is, this is a battle. It's a, ba- a spiritual battle as well as a mental, emotional, and physical battle. So this study, number one, I want to give a few quotes that we're going to just read them as, I, as we go along here that illuminate the battle we're in. And then secondly, I want to give a few thoughts in the light of God's living and powerful word, John chapter 8. So for me, this woman taken in adultery captures the heart of Jesus towards an ashamed, broken, and guilty woman who is trembling on the precipice of death. It's this moving account of a great light, and Jesus closed it by saying, I'm the light of the world. So it's this moving account of a great light, shining into the darkness of her sin and shame, not to condemn her, but to raise her up and send her on her way, having been given a glimpse of a love and a hope and a newness of life. And I think that's what happens to people that are hearing these things. Maybe the first time they're going about their life and, and they're thinking of doing these things. I can, I can relate to that somewhat. I got my girlfriend pregnant when I was about 18. And our first thought way back, huh, this is way back. And my, our first thought is we're going to Mexico, get an abortion. Didn't even think about it. I was raised in church. So the devil has done a good job of, of, of anesthetizing us against this great evil. And so the waking up here for this woman a glimpse of a love and a hope and a newness of life she never thought possible. And so I offer you my gleanings in hopes that you will be encouraged by them this morning. I trust the Holy Spirit will move among us, ministering the truth, His word, His grace, His mercy, His love through Jesus as our great and good and gracious shepherd. Would you say amen to that? So a few quotes that illuminate the battle we are in. R.C. Sproul, when interviewed by his son, R.C. Jr., asked why he titled his book, Abortion, A Rational Look at an Emotional Issue. He wrote it in 1990. He was then interviewed by his son about 10 years ago. He said this, quote, I wanted to acknowledge up front that so much of the debate about the question of abortion is generated by heat rather than light, by more emotions than by intelligent discourse, that this book was not going to be a religious diatribe, but rather that the discussion and the arguments that would be set forth would come, out, would come not only from the Bible, but also from natural law and from the court of reason itself. He continues, In the book I mentioned somewhat naively my conviction 20 years ago, that if we could persuade people that this was a human life, that we were taking a human life, that the debate would be over, and it would be a very short time until Roe v. Wade would be repealed. And to my utter astonishment, that has not been the case. More and more and more people clearly agree that, it, that this is a human being, an unborn human being, but it's an unwanted unborn human being. And they have no problem with continuing the process even though they're ready to admit what they're doing is destroying the life of an unborn human person, a living human person. Because so that was what he was in this interview. In a message he gave on abortion, he said, quote this, I've had the privilege of studying the things of God as my life's vocation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure there are errors in my theology. If I I knew where they were, I would try to get rid of them. I want to be accurate. I want to be faithful. I want to know God, not just abstractly or academically. I want to know God personally. Now, I want to say something bold. I think I do know him, not perfectly, but I know something about God. And hear this, if I know anything about the character of Almighty God, whose person and work I've been studying for so many years, I know that God hates abortion on demand. What terrifies me is somebody now saying I have the right to do this is actually claiming divine endorsement for their activity. And when we start calling good evil and evil good and trying to say that God himself endorses an activity that he abominates, we're in trouble. Unquote. Matt Chandler, Pastor of Village Church in Texas quotes Mary Elizabeth Williams from a 2012 article she wrote entitled "So What If Abortion Ends Life." She wrote this quote: "Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancy, I have never wavered for a moment in belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is—a human life—and that doesn't make me one less I, one one I owe to less solidly pro-choice." So her rationale. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandmother and kill your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same right as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstance and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always unquote after which pastor Matt Chandler after which he throws up his hands goes that's insane now that's how i feel so often now that is insane and him and talking about this whole this this article this woman wrote and viewing it to us as believers it's insane it makes no sense that people actually think that now and they link and so we're in a battle It's way more more down the road of darkness than we thought. So I'm saying, Lord, in fact, this insanity, as much as we know that the God of this age is a liar who keeps the masses blinded by deception, and he binds them in in the darkness of their sin, that's what the devil does. The insanity is certain. This insanity, for those on the front line, is indeed going to cause battle fatigue it just gets wearying, it gets overwhelming. So, especially among the ranks of those who are on the front lines. They're doing the battle, they're, there, they're standing outside, whatever they're doing, they're on the front lines. And I would include there, without a hesitation, those who are praying for those who are on the front lines. It's critical. And so, I also begin by saying to you who are on the front lines, May the Lord strengthen you with with might through his spirit in the inner man. May you continue to fight the good fight of faith by confessing a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Stay at it. May you continue to be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A work who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Stay at it. May you keep running your race with your Joy, with joy, by fixing your eyes on Jesus, knowing that He is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, would you say Amen? amen. Stay at it, each and every one of us. This morning, this this uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday now has been around for a long time. It reminds us again. It brings to fore, particularly as I've again given my couple days to just thinking through and studying, along with the the ways it comes up in just the the daily things of, of my life. We must stay at it. However the Lord directs us, whatever's going on, knowing that God himself, Jesus himself, weeps over the evils that the devil has perpetrated on our culture, that our sinful natures have taken hold of, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. On January 22, 1973, Roe v. Wade legalized all abortions, making murder a constitutional right. And then on June 24, 2022, not very long ago, in Dobbs versus Jackson, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned 50 years of precedent, overruling Roe v. Wade federally. In the year following that decision, the pace of new legislation on abortion at the state level has been swift. Between these two dates, not exactly in the middle, about a th- now, about a quarter of the way in it, from when it was when Roe v. Wade was legalized legalized it, between these dates, on January 14, 1988, President Ronald Reagan issued Proclamation 5761, National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Now, a little reader's digest, you really should read it. It's incredible. It's about a two-page thing. It's incredible that our president, President Reagan, made this proclamation. You read that, you'd think he was right in the Bible. He just write from the Bible. So he this is I'll just give you parts of it. He said, This this uh, proclamation America has has been given a great America has given a great gift to the world, a gift that has irrevocably changed humanity's future. Our gift, the declaration as a cardinal principle of all just law of the God-given unalienable rights possessed by every human being. One of those unalienable rights, as the Declaration of Independence affirms so, so eloquently, is the right to life. In the 15 years, again, this is written in 1988, in the 15 years since the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, however, America's unborn have been denied their right to life. Among the tragic and unspeakable results in the past decade and a half, have been the loss of the life of 22 million infants before birth, the pressure and anguish of countless women and girls who are driven to abortion. Today, with another 35 years added to this Holocaust, the total in the U.S. is now 60 million. We are told, and this is not sensational, this is fact. This is what's happened. We are told, he continues, that we may not interfere with abortion. We are told that we may not impose our morality on those who wish to allow or participate in the taking of the life of infants before birth, yet no one calls it, quote, imposing morality to prohibit the taking of life after people are born. We are told as well that that there exists a right to end the lives of unborn children, yet no one can explain how such a right can exist in stark contradiction of each person's fundamental right to life. That we have killed the unborn 15 years does not nullify this right to life, nor could any number of killings ever do so. All medical and scientific evidence increasingly affirms that children before birth share all the basic attributes of human personality, that they, in fact, are persons. Today, with another 35 years of added scientific evidence, it is an established, unassailable, undeniable scientific evidence fact from a 2018 study at the University of Chicago on when life begins the view of 5212 out of 5502 biologists 95% not christian not all christians at all but this this study they did 95% of these biologists said is that a human's life begins at fertilization conception So they can't run for that anymore. They can't run and hide under this whole thing that in 73 was not known like it is now. From stand to reason ministry, most defenses of abortion assume the unborn is not a human being. Think about it. Privacy and choice are not valid reasons to kill born human beings. This means that if the unborn is a human being, just like you and me, you can't kill him or her for the same reasons you can't kill a born human being. And I shared this in a study recently also. This is just a great capturing of the problem that we need to understand. This is what's going on. If the unborn is not a human being, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human being, no justification for abortion is adequate. That's why we must first answer the question what is the unborn? We know from embryology, again, from Stand to Reason, we know from embryology, the study of the earliest stages of life, that human life comes into existence when two gametes, sperm and egg, fuse to form a living zygote. The zygote is a term for a newly conceived life after the sperm and egg meet, before the embryo begins to divide, and that's about 30 hours. The science of embryology tells us the unborn is living, unique human being. If this is not, if this, you've heard this before, so have I. But if you've not heard these things, I'm just giving you some things here to understand that God, in his design, and how he created us in his image, is unassailable as far as being a fact. That at conception, we are not dogs, we're not animals, we are human beings from the point of conception. So God's image stamped in our lives should be the very thing that motivates us to understand when this is being taken, whether it be abortion or any other way. That's why it's a shudder to think of these things, the Holocaust in in Germany or any of those things. So it's living, unique human being. It's living, notice there's no period of non-life. It's not potential life, it's actual life at conception. This newly formed zygote meets all the biological criteria for life. It responds to stimuli and metabolizes nutrients. The unborn is growing, and all that's needed for it to continue to grow is exactly the same thing other humans need, nutrition and a proper environment. It's unique. The unborn has its own fingerprints, DNA, circulatory system, blood type, and gender. The unborn can have a different race or ethnicity from its mother. The unborn is a unique individual, not merely part of the mother's body. It's living, it's unique, and it's human. The unborn is a human being. This should be obvious. Humans produce humans, not donkeys, dolphins, or dogs. This is fun- a fundamental truth of biology. To deny it is to deny science. The science of embryology tells us the unborn is living and unique human being. So alongside the ministries represented here, CareNet, Healing Hearts, Tiny Heartbeat, are many others. I came across this one, that I hadn't, I, and I was asking Luke about it. 73 Abort 73, or is it 73 Abort? Abort 73. abort 73. If you want to be equipped, you got to go to that website. As long as yours, but it's an ama- and, I, and I hadn't really looked at it. It's, it's just, it's it's very good. So if you want to be more equipped, it's Abort 73, which I'm assuming stands for when Roe v. Wade was first put in place. Then there's one I read from Stand to Reason. Then there's Family Research Council and many others. So that's that. A few thoughts in light of, the God, of God's living and powerful Word, And I, I hope God will help me just to communicate the heart of God in these matters of broken lives, ruined lives. What sin has done in destroying the very fabric of what God initially created to be a One of great glory. So he says, early in the morning, if you're in your Bibles now, John chapter 8, early in the morning, he came again in the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? So into this calm scene at the temple come barging these scribes and Pharisees, disrupting Jesus as he teaches. The woman, her hair and clothes, I picture disheveled, publicly humiliated, embarrassed, her head bowed, ashamed, weeping, and literally deathly afraid. This woman was caught and adulted in the very act. What do you say? Moses says, stone her. She is caught guilty. No question as to that, she's caught in the very act. They walked into the room. No question as to her punishment, the sentence is death. That's in the law that God gave to us in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. So the law condemns. The law catches the sinner and condemns to death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 7 and 9, it says the law is the ministry of death. That the law is the ministry of condemnation. That's why God gave it for that very reason. It does not matter if you are screaming your head off or weeping pitifully over your sins. The law cares nothing for the state of your emotions. The law cares nothing for the condition of your heart, hard or soft, fixed or broken. The law condemns all sinners equally and completely. Is this encouraging? I'm kidding. <laughs> the law demands perfection. It's the standard, it's God's standard. It's God's who He is in nature, very nature. Perfect holiness, perfect justice, perfect goodness. No shadow of turning. It is hard, the law, hard and immovable. Black and white, straight without deviation. It makes no allowance for even the slightest variance from perfection. It condemns every thought, word, and deed that is not perfect. So let me say what is not easy to say for anybody. Abortion is murder. The taking of an innocent life, therefore abortion is sin. Now, a much-used tactic of the devil is to call sin something else. Another tactic, when this is brought up, this whole that, that abortion is murder, is to divert the discussion to the extremely rare circumstance where the mother's life is in jeopardy. Don't get trapped by this. It is a whole different discussion. One is about murdering an innocent human being. The other is about saving a human life. The problem is not the law, but the lawbreaker. What does God say? How does God see that? We have a picture here of the way the law deals with the sinner and this woman. It deals with sin sin in the same way that these men are dealing with this woman. Guilty. What do you say? I know what I'd say. I know what I'd do. What do you say, Jesus? It mercilessly and harshly condemns her with zero compassion and zero regard for her feelings or problems. Now, their real motivation is they want to stone, kill Jesus. You might say, well, I'm not as bad as that. I deserve better treatment than that. See, the problem is that the law is a whole. So you break one part, you broke the whole thing. You're guilty before God. I'm guilty before God. There's sin in my heart. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. You break one, you've broken the law. You're guilty. I'm guilty. And that's what the law does. You see, it's why God gave the law is to catch the sinner. Catch them so that he might forgive them. Catch them so he might redeem them. Catch them so he might shine into their lives of what's really going on and then offer to them the healing that comes through only God. You see, by knowing we are condemned by God's law, we understand our great need to be forgiven by God, to be cleansed by his grace. Everyone who knows the Lord in this room would say, amen, I need to hear it. That God has cleansed us. He's washed us. He's forgiven us through the cross of Jesus Christ. That God paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He offers to us through his death, burial, and resurrection the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ applied to my life. And God forgives me, cleanses me, and says, Neither do I condemn you. People need the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The law convicts of sin that we might turn to God and be forgiven. God gave us a conscience to know right and wrong. Romans says, "Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing." You You cannot escape the conscience unless you continually, as far as uh, George Washington said, labor to keep alive your that. Your breast, that little spark of celestial fire called, fire called conscience. Conscience, said an Indian, is a three-cornered thing in my heart that stands still while I'm, when I'm good, but when I am bad, it turns around and the corners hurt a lot. If I keep on doing wrong, the corners wear off and it does not hurt anymore, unquote. But let me say it might not hurt, but it doesn't heal. You see, the conscience is something God gave to us so that we would know right from wrong we'd be able to discern those things and then go to the one who can forgive us of all the wrongs. So they, re- they were trying to really catch and accuse Jesus. They say there, what do you say, really, literally? You there, what do you say? It's like, it's very derogatory. You there, what do you say? We got it down, man, but what do you say? You see, and what they're doing is they're trying to trap Jesus. If, he should, if, if Jesus said she was to go free, he would contradict the law of Moses. What is the law of Moses? Stoner. So suppose Jesus says, well, Moses said that, and of course it is God's word, but I say unto you, let the woman go free. I'm releasing you from your obedience to the law. Why, they would have said at once, blasphemy, stone him. In this he would be caught challenging Rome, the authority of Rome, because capital punishment was all Rome's authority. But really, the undergirding a lot of this is he would be no different, Jesus, would be no different in his lack of compassion. They knew Jesus was a compassionate and forgiving man. They saw it, they heard it all the time. They couldn't stand it. Suppose Jesus says to them, well, yes, Moses commanded that such should be stoned, and the 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 law is God's holy word, And the only thing to do is to take this woman out and stone her. And then if you can find the guy, get him and stone him too. Do you think sinners would be coming to Jesus? If that's what he was doing? It's not that he was negating what the law was doing. But he was there to fulfill the law in order to forgive the things that the the law had exposed. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 6. He stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. He wasn't pointing his finger at the woman. He wasn't pointing his finger at the scribes and pharaohs. He was taking his finger and he begins to write. So when they continued asking, he raised himself up and said to them, he was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He said nothing in response. Not that she was innocent or she, because she was not. No pointing fingers. She sim- he's simply writing something on the ground, stands up, gives this statement, goes back down and starts writing again. Can you hear the murmur of the crowd as their necks are craning to see this sinner? Jesus stooped down for her so that everyone else would go God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn the world that the world through him might be saved God stooped down became a human being to die on a cross nor that we might be saved Now that our lives might be healed through him the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them this is the heart of Jesus. He stooped to touch the leper. And he said to the leper, it says, Jesus was move with compassion. You don't touch lepers. Well, he touched him, stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I'm willing to be cleansed. God is wanting and willing to cleanse our lives. He wrote on the ground before her accusers, not pointing the finger, but to write on the ground. The finger of God in giving the law, was etched in stone. We see that in Exodus. He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the finger of God was writing the law in stone, permanent, immovable. But now Jesus, the finger of God, stoops down to write in the sand to say it's removable. And I don't know what he was writing, and I wish that... (laughs) By the way, this whole thing takes everyone of us out of the stone-throwing crowd. Oh, I wish he had, that John had told us what Jesus wrote. Don't you? I wonder if the first time he wrote starts writing the names. Kevin. Steve. John. Stands up. He was without sin. Be the first to throw the stone. Okay, and then he sits down, and then next to the name, he puts the sin. He puts the sin in the next one. And it says they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. And here's what I find. The older we get, the more sin we accumulate, the more we're aware of our sin. But I'll tell you what else can happen. We can be- get much better at hiding it. And those things erode the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. The accusers became, they came and they were gone. I, this is such a beautiful picture to me. He's doing what he's doing so that everyone else leaves. And I personally believe he didn't look this woman in the eye yet adding to her shame and not that she would even catch his eye. She's downtrodden. She's disheveled. She's there ashamed of what's going on. She's there and really maybe dead in just a few minutes. It's my belief that he's writing "Never, never eye contact. All these ones go and he's left alone. May I say to you, the great healing of God is when we're with Jesus alone. And I believe he said, and the first icon he had was, woman, where are your accusers? Are there none? Where'd they go? You see, had they stuck around, they'd still be accusing her. They're gone. He raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And as he did so, then he says in verse 10, he said to her, woman, now that word woman is the same word that Jesus used about his mom. It's very endearing. It's very tender. It's very honoring. It's very woman. Now, this is a woman caught in adultery, and Jesus uses this enduring term, woman, dear one. Where are those accused of yours? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. For me, this woman taking adultery captures the heart. Can I have the worship team come out? captures the heart of Jesus towards an, unash- towards an ashamed, broken, and guilty woman who is trembling on the precipice of death. When I think of abortion, I think of what you guys are doing and what, what's going on the front lines. This is the heart of God through the gospel. And here she is, she's taken, and, her, and in this moving account of this great light shining into the darkness of her sin. Jesus. Shining into the darkness of her shame. Jesus. Not to condemn her, but to raise her up and send her on her way, having been given a glimpse of a love and a hope and a newness of life that she never thought possible. And how many do we know that never think that's possible? And so in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, of life, the sanctity of life. Jesus In John, he writes, In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. That was that true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting Life. I have come, Jesus said, as a light into the world. Whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. First Peter, he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So out of the darkness of condemnation, into the light of his compassion. This is what Jesus does. It's what he's doing for this woman. Out of the darkness of guilt, into the light of his forgiveness out of the darkness of pain and misery and shame into the light of his healing, his acceptance, his assurance. It's out of the darkness of fear into the light of his freedom. It's out of the darkness of loneliness into the light of his love. Now there is another passage that we need to remember for any of us believers here. But then also I would extend this same truth to you who don't know the Lord, but also in the context of what God wants to do in healing our lives from the sin that has so easily beset us. In First John it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his truth is not in us. But, and then he says, verse chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I want to close and if you would stand, we'll we'll do this and then take us into a song. But I want to do this. We didn't do a responsive reading because I wanted to save this one. And I stole the whole thing. So (laughs) Pastor Gary Hamrick's uh, 2023 Sanctity of Life message, he did this and I thought it was just fantastic. That our God is the God of life. So I'm going to say the beginning, and anything is underlined, all of you say. Okay? God is the God of life. Not that. Okay. <laughs> Pay attention. Okay. God created us with the... His word instructs us in the... He is, he is the author. When we get saved, we walk in. He is the... Life. He is the... He is the, he is the we will be given the... Our names are written in the, we will eat from the, we will drink from the, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life, life freely. Amen.